Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, host of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is an extra grog pod. A break from the usual format for one show only. You can thank the Patreons for this episode as it's due to their generosity that we hit a stretch goal where we've promised to do an extra Nostalgia podcast every year where we'll talk about the stuff that we're playing now. For the past three years, UK Games Expo in Birmingham has been on our calendar of events. The tentpole to our gaming year. It's grown and grown in a relatively short time that we've been attending. And this time it occupied three massive halls in the National Exhibition Centre. There's shopping, open gaming, tournament gaming, cosplay, shopping, a Viking village, a starship simulator, seminars and more shopping. But we don't really get much chance to see all of that as a 10 minute walk away there's the Hilton Metropole Hotel, which becomes completely and utterly overtaken by role players and the Order of Masonic Ladies. We'll ignore the Masonic Ladies because it's them that drinks all the beer. The role playing schedule is the largest outside of America, with nearly 500 individual games played from Friday to Sunday, catering for 2,000 players with 100 different games to suit every taste. The chairs are comfortable, the rooms are carpeted, but noise levels can still get quite high in the side rooms. Last year I was in the same room as the Cthulhu Masters. I was shouting DROCK in the Judge Dread game I was running and they were wailing YOGSOFOF! 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 This episode will feature me and my travelling companion Blythe as we prepare, discuss and participate in the event. It's all about our personal experience of the games, because play's the thing, right? Interspersed are segments that are recorded before the event, holed up in my den, putting things together. Now, Games Master preparation takes many forms, and I recorded these bits when I was doing the actual graft, getting this stuff together. I've recently become engrossed by Shea Webster's Role Play Rescue podcast, which features a GM journal every week as he prepares himself for the games. I thought I'd have a go at creating my own GM diary with the pompous title A Games Master Prepares. Also featured are the highlights about Games Master preparation from the seminar that I participated in, which was hosted by the Smart Party with Paul Fricker from the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. How to GM at conventions. Also, there's a first, last and everything from Kihar, formerly of the Dissecting Worlds podcast. And if you follow his blog, you'll see the details of his convention preparation and play reports. I'll put a link in the show notes. We try to avoid hitting your FOMO buttons. If we do hit them, then don't worry, this is a one-off. Normal service will be resumed next time. 
Ramblers, let's get rambling. So I'm with Blythe in the uh, pub, we're just having a quick pint. This time next week, Blythe, we'll be in Birmingham. Yes, we will. Uh, oh, being well. <laughs> well, yeah, you no, say, no, you say that, like, that's in, in theory we'll be in Birmingham, <laughs> but you are driving. <laughs> and how we man navigating? Yeah. I'm all right. I'm going to drink now. In seven days' time, you look worn. That look worn off. But I think once we we did drive the wrong way into Scotland for an hour, didn't we? We did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we 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 have to Birmingham next week, and I just wanted to ask you before then. Yeah. What have you got to do between now and when we're gone? So so what are you doing there? What are you running? I'm running Epton Cthulhu, so it's pretty much done, but I need to print off handouts and things, paraphernalia, you know, the RPG paraphernalia. Yeah, so so what bling are you taking? RPG bling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got some special counters that will act as fate points um, with, with elder signs on Hopefully they'll make an impression. Oh, you're a sellout. You're I, a sellout. I know I am. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, so just just turn up and say, yeah. right, theatre of the mind. Here's your character sheet. Here's some dice. Theatre of the mind. Theatre of the mind. Get just get on with it. Yeah. 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 There's a bit of pressure, isn't it, to bring paraphernalia? Yeah. You know. So it's the invention of the whole laminator. The world's gone mad. Yeah. As, as I've said before, I'm sure that the whole thing's just a conspiracy cell. Printering. Uh, printering. Yeah. Yeah. Wizards of the Coast have got shares in printering, haven't yeah. <laughs> So just just tell us about the um, Act on Cthulhu that you're running. What, what, what scenario is it? What's, what's the title it's of it? It's called Message from Saint Michel. Saint Michel. See, I picked, I picked a. Saint Michael's. Saint Michael's. It's my suspenses. Mark suspenses. Setting my suspenses. This is enough to drain anyone's sanity, isn't it? <laughs> but I've um, I've set it. It's set in occupied France. Right. In 1940. Because I took the Second yeah. World War, and uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then I realised I can't speak French and I can't pronounce anything in French. <laughs> I'm worse at pronouncing things in French than I am pronouncing the Cthulhu monsters <laughs> but I've lumbered myself with it it's too late now isn't it you know yeah. so hopefully it won't turn into an episode of LOLO but you never know <laughs> might do <laughs> good stuff now I want to give you something here so because I'm not going to see you now because uh, I'm off uh, yeah, I'm yeah. off work and I'm going to see each other yeah. so I'll pick you up yeah uh, next nine o'clock in ten. Nine o'clock. I can't come any sooner. You cannot come any sooner, because no. <laughs> it's the rules. Well, it's the rules because my wife's working a night shift, and, and when I said you were coming at eight, she, she said, "Oh well, I won't see you forever." It's the idea. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. So, rules. so, so you have to. She has to get home from work, and I have to say goodbye, darling. I'm going to Expo, and she'll say through gritted teeth, "Have a good time." <laughs> And then I'll get in the car and say to you, drive, don't look back, drive, <laughs> go. Get out of here. Come on. So, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to hand over this Monday night, because okay. we've decided on for our birthday that we're going to swap yes. £20. Swap £20. Yeah. And then wander around the trade hall, not knowing how to spend it. Yeah. yeah. So here's uh, 20 quid. Now, here's your 20 quid. Alright, so let's see what we can get with that. Yeah, 20 quid's worth of dice, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I 
All right. Well, good luck with your preparations. Yes. Thank you. When it comes to prep, it's a double-edged sword. The absolute best games I've run are the ones where I've done minimum preparation and managed to fly by the seat of my pants, listening and responding to the players' interactions and ideas and weaving together magic. But the worst ones I've done are the ones where I've entered into the session with a half-baked idea and landed on my arse. I still have the bruises. When I'm doing home games or regular online games, I usually jot down the important bits on post-it notes to remind me of the key scenes and encounters or the sensations I want to create at particular points. Most of the preparation is done in my head. I think I've mentioned before, Cool Runnings prep. In the Cool Runnings movie, the Jamaican bobsleigh team sit in the bath the night before predicting the turns and moves that they anticipate in the bobsleigh competition that's due the next day. Most of my Games Master prep takes the form of this cool running, working through the twists and turns in the scenario in my head the night before. But this time I'm going to leave nothing to chance and make sure that I'm well prepared and have a number of fallbacks just in case the game doesn't take flight. I've also given a commitment to myself not to leave anything for the actual convention itself because despite the best will there's never any time to do any prep, any sober prep anyway. And this time I've made it hard for myself as I've picked three different games, three different settings, three different approaches and three different styles of delivery. I'll go into the more detail as we go through this podcast but let me do a quick run through. The first is the 2000 AD comic Strontium Dog that I've built from the ground up using Savage Worlds Explorer Edition. It's a scenario that I've written already and I've run it twice with two different outcomes. This adventure is over the top with accessories and various blingy bits. Second is Cyworld Fantasy Game Unlimited's role-playing game of the Psionic World, published in 1984. I'm doing a pre-written scenario that first appeared in the Hammershell Strike Supplement, and which was published in 1985, but I've really adapted it. It's very different from how it appears in that supplement. I've made some bits and pieces, but this is largely a Theatre of the Mind production. Finally, last but certainly not least, is Leoness from the Design Mechanism. The game hasn't been published yet, and this is a specially written scenario from Los Whitaker. So I'm pl- playing it close to the book. It's based on Mithras, which we covered back in episode 20, I think. There's a degree of old school D100 crunch in this one. So, It's Saturday, six days to go, and at this point, all I can see in front of me are a series of tasks to complete. 
I'm not the most disciplined of people when it comes to getting organised, so I have to have ways of tracking things. Over the past few months, putting aside work and all the home stuff, I've had quite a few demands on my spare time. The grog pod, the grog zine, organising virtual grog meet, as well as running games and appearing on other podcasts. The only way I've found of keeping control of all this that suits my visual and casual approach to planning is using the Kanban method. So, here on my wall, near the great library of RPGs, is a wall full of post-it notes organised into columns and rows. There's a row for each project, each game that I'm preparing, and a column for all the tasks that I need to do, depending at what stage that they're at. The first stage is the backlog. I've listed here all of the things that I've got to do before Friday. I've put a dot on some that are essential because some of them are just ideas, additional fluff that I've stuck on the wall when they've come to me. The next column is waiting for. For example, I've sent a copy of the Elder Isle map to the printer and I need to pick it up on Tuesday. And the next one is working on and I'll come to those later on. And the last one is done, which is empty at the moment. But to be honest, I usually end up tearing up the post-it once I've completed it. That's it, a visual guide. Right, let's fire up this printer and pick them off one by one. Right, by some uh, strange miracle, we've got here. <laughs> we to get with relative ease. Yeah. <laughs> Driving the right direction for a change. Yeah, we didn't end up in uh, Chelmsford or something. Chelmsford? I don't think you'd end up in Chelmsford if you tried. Yeah, so we, we sat in the car, yeah. in the car park. Okay. So before going, I just wanted to check with you, because we're not just running games here, are we? We're no. playing games. What games have you got? I've got, this afternoon, I've got Barbarians of Lemuria. Oh, yeah. Which I'm looking forward to. A game, a game I recently acquired, but I've not, I've not played it or run it yet. So, seems like a good idea to to have a go at it. Quite, I like it. I think it's a nice, nice little game. Sword and sorcery, Conan style stuff. This this evening I'm playing a bit of fifth edition D and D, because I run a lot of D and D, as you know, online for our Wednesday night group. But I don't, I don't play it very often. I've only played it. We did Minds of Fandel, did it? Minds of Fandel. I played with Steve Ray. At convergence, but I've not played a lot of it, so I quite like being a player because it's a different experience, isn't it? So yeah, that's that's today. Yes, a packed program. Packed program, yeah. So Barbarians of Lemuria, it's 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 quite a simple system, isn't it? That? Yeah, it's a simple kind of two d six system with bonus dice and negative, like an advantage. Yeah, yeah, again, it's two d six. You get an extra d six in certain situations, and another d six that you take the lowest or the highest, that kind of thing. A boon, a boon and a bane, I think they call it, don't they? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice game because it's got it's one of those with sort of economic stack up as well because it's a game with the whole thing in one book. So you get the monsters, you get the setting, you get the characters, you get all that sort of stuff. And there's a real there's a good feeling when you read the rule, but there's a good feel, a sense of proper sword and sorcery you know yeah. sorcerers tend to be the bad guys you're the heroes that kind of thing you so, know pirates and 
rescuing slaves and that kind of thing. It's good, good fun, I think. You know. Yeah, that's good. Well, I've got this afternoon. I've got um, Legend of the Five Rings, mm. which again I have acquired. To use yes. your phrase, you know, yeah. Time. Well, that's what we're using. We're using Expo as kind of experimental yeah. stage, aren't we, to try games we've got but not run yet? Yeah. <laughs> Show us how it's done. Yeah. Because that's got a peculiar dice that isn't straightforward. No. Um, no, and there's a lot of material published, um, a lot of setting detail built into the characters. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. Tomorrow morning, I've got um, a game. Um, I have to look at the word because I can't say it. Okay. It's uh, Carpanium. Is that how you say it? Carpanium. Carpanium. Is it Carpanium or Carf? Kafanium. 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 Sounds like a kind of cough mixture. You might go into the chemist now. Have you got a bottle of Kafanium? Yeah. Right, you're feeling a bit chester, yeah. Where well, do you want me to rub it? The, <laughs> the Tales of the Dragon Mart. Oh, yeah, right. so. okay. Now, I don't know a lot about it, clearly. I don't know even to say you it. You can't even say it. Uh, but I believe that it's a bit of a Ray Harryhausen type oh, ancient. Okay. Arabian Nights yeah. type uh, thing, so I'm interested to find out what that is. Partly because the games master said that I can play Caroline Monroe in it, so did he? I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to pass over a chance like that. No, no, you won't leave the tent. <laughs> <laughs> right, we better leave this car, aren't we? Let's go and uh, see yes. what's going down. Okay. Kihar here, formerly of Dissecting Worlds, um, sat in Cliverow, which is a bit odd. My first, my last, my everything. My first was quite boring Redbox D&D, inspired by, God help me, the D&D cartoon. Uh, I decided the only person who was going to GM was me, so I knocked up a dungeon involving a black swamp dragon and an evil baron. Uh, and ran that for my mate Eduardo. Um, subsequent gaming experiences with Eduardo proved a unfathomable ability to take any rule set and break it in the interests of power gaming and min-maxing. And unsurprisingly, he's now a merchant banker. Um, that was my first. My last is I'm having a giggle. Uh, on Wednesday lunchtimes at Just Play Game in Liverpool, 12 till 2. If you're Liverpool based, you're very welcome to pop along. Uh, playing Marvel superheroes, and the uh, three regulars have fashioned together uh, the League of Liverpool Legends, which is not a touring bunch of veteran football after dinner speakers, but a superhero team based out of the Triad building in Bootle, and they will fight any supervillainy that has purple bins. They may even stretch to the Wirral and Sefton at a push. But that's proving a lot of fun and is very easily done in the 90 minute sort of extended lunchtime we have to play. Uh, it lends itself to kind of a single four colour comic action uh, type setup. So that's good. Am I everything? Um, people don't might not know, but um, if they're not on Twitter. But uh, 
I quite like flashing blades. What's flashing blades? Flashing Blades is an FGU game written by Mark Pettigrew when he was 15, published when he was 18. In 56 pages, it gives you uh, a superlative set of dueling rules, which use a scissor-paper-stone mechanic to really get you into the mindset of your character when you're fencing. It borrows from the traveller-type career path, but that's actually an element in play because your characters have careers. They could be in the army, they could be bankers, they could be churchmen. They could be a combination. They could be in finance. Um, they could be members of gentlemen clubs. And on an annual type basis, you see what happens in their careers. And this is all part of the social rank mechanism, uh, which is one of the ways your characters advance. They don't just get better at hitting things or get an extra hit point now and again. They also rise in social status. status. It's a great game. There's a lot of good support in terms of scenarios that were published at the time. My lot have uh, the cauldroneers, so-called, because they live in the house of the bubbling cauldron, their lodging house, have uh, just finished uh, The Ambassador's Tales, which is an espionage jaunt across Europe, and uh, we're getting ready for a second season uh, towards the winter when uh, my lady cricketer's game comes to an end. Um, but it's it's just a lovely little system. It's got some OSR kinks. It's I think a second edition could do things like give cards for the different manoeuvres you have to remember for fencing. That would make life slightly easier. And I think it would lend itself to intergenerational play. Those, those are the things I'd do for a second edition. But for um, quite a cheap pickup and quite a rompy system... And, it, and some of the published scenarios really work well for conventions. I've run the Grand Theatre, I've run the Grand, um, the Great Marksmanship Tourney now. Um, I've got another couple in the book in mind. But uh, Flashing Blades is just a smashing little system. It really is, really is. It's as good now as it was when I was 15, and I did go a good 30 years, no, 20 years without playing it. Um, but check it out. Uh, Strontium Dog Savage Worlds. I know there's a new Adventurer edition of the rules, but I did it in the Explorer edition early in the year, and it's too late to change it now. I was inspired to do this adventure by Daily Dwarf. He ran a Judge Dread Savage Worlds, an American werebear in Britsit, uh, for last year's grog meet. It was inspiring for many reasons. It demonstrated that Savage Worlds is a good fit for Judge Dredd and it was possible to replicate the humour of the comics. So the final confrontation was an epic homage to both an American werewolf in London and the children's TV programme Blue Peter with a dash of King Kong. Tremendous stuff. I started to form an idea about Strontium Dog. Uh, Strontium Dog is probably my favourite 2000 AD comic strip and I'd been rereading the early ones and it struck me that Pat Mills' broad satire about cruel Creelman and his pogroms against the muties is as relevant now as it was back in the early 80s when it was first written. It may lack subtlety but all the better for a one-off game. I also noticed that the strip had a mythic quality 
that I wasn't aware of when I first read them as a kid. I started to form an idea about a parody of the Odyssey of Homer, but with a comment on the current political situation and with contemporary concerns. It grew and grew in my head in ambition and scope. In fact, I probably overthought it. I had enough ideas to last a full campaign. So, the setup is the Search and Destroy Agency headquarters, the Doghouse, has dispatched a team of agents to Katar with warrants to seek out dangerous criminals. A con hopper transporting criminals to justice has crash landed. So, the task is to hunt them down and find them, and the rewards are great. So, the core task of the PCs is to track down the escaped criminals, and I've created some colourful NPCs for them to hunt. Wild Dai, an arsonist who burned down a rill. The Bickle Brothers, conjoined De Niro's. You're looking at me? No, I'm looking at you. No, you're looking at me. And there's Summit 28, the cyborg cannibal from Yorkshire. Summit 28. They'll get their designated criminal by drawing a warrant card at random. And bennies will be distributed when the warrant is completed. If a warrant's fulfilled, all of the players will get a benny. The strontium dog making the hit will get an extra one. And if it's your card, you'll get three. So it's dog eat dog. When I've run this before, uh, I think there's a broad agreement at the beginning that everybody will assist each other. But in the end, when it comes to doing the kill, people like to have the glory to themselves. The pregens were created rolling on tables provided in the Strontium Dog Supplement for Traveller, written by Lawrence Whitaker, incidentally, who's the author of the Leoness scenario I'm running too. I thought Traveller was a bit too on the nose for uh, Strontium Dog. It's more of a science fiction fantasy. But the tables and the equipment list in the supplement are really flavourful and create some really whacked out muties. So for the pregens, I've got Harpy Harry, who's covered in feathers, the Grimsby Reaper, the weirdest of the weird bunch, who's got a skeleton head covered in black fur, Bony C, uh, the face man without a face, with a beguiling crystal eyes, uh, Glassjaw Vargas, who's the tank, with a malformed mandible. There's Brightman Rock, who's the smarts, a massive calcified head. And finally, the crackshot Gurney Knuckles, whose chin is conjoined to his forehead. So when I've rolled the muties, what I've done is looked at the edges and weaknesses that are in Savage Worlds and applied them to suit the mutation that they rolled. So I've scheduled this one for Friday night. It's the first one that I'm running because it'll need all my energy. I can see myself in full cabaret GM style, stood up for most of it doing the voices. I've got Lego minifigures. I've made them from my son's collection, pieced together the muties. Savage Worlds has elements of a tabletop skirmish game and it's probably best to visualise it. Right, so... 
over here on my post-it backlog create an extra pre-gen but it hasn't got a dot on it so it'll probably never happen not at this late stage um, more essentially I need to soup up the uh, bad guys so when I've uh, when I've run this um, before it's been a bit of a breeze for the PCs um, particularly when it came to the final boss confrontation um, the ultimate baddie is Leonard Stump an ex-space estate tycoon and a TV personality who's the president of the province and they discover that he's lured them there to televise the hunt for his TV programme You're Fried! Halfway through the adventure Johnny Alpha himself releases a warrant for Stump's termination. It's pretty relentless in an adventure. At the start of the session, they have to escape from a transporter they're in before it crash lands. And from that moment, it's encounter after encounter until it slowly dawns on them that they're being manipulated. The first time I ran this, due to time pressure, Stump came looking for them. And the focus of the activity was on the crash site where the convicts Jerry rigged a huge gun. The second time they hunted Stump down to his processing plant where TV viewers were being transformed into pig-like food. In both times he was taken down with a one-shot kill so it was a bit of an anticlimax. So I'm going to review him. Now what I've done with this is I've put all of the adventure onto index cards because I realised we're standing up I never read A4 sheets of paper, so I'll put them all on cards, um, which I'll have on a stand in front of me and pluck out when I need them. So, what I'm going to do with him, I've been giving it some thought. See, Savage Worlds has the idea of wild cards and extras. So, extras fall on the first shot. They're like the mooks. But wildcards MPs can take multiple wounds and they can have an extra wild dice, much like the player characters. And because Stump is a boss, I'm going to give him a couple of chances to re-roll. So I'm going to give him a couple of bennies too. Also, I'm going to increase his defences by giving him infinity-style gauntlets for his tiny, tiny hands, which means... He has a chance to deflect back shots. I'd, I'd abandoned the idea of turning his finely woven orange hair into a helmet. It was too daft. Although, to be honest, it's not stopped me so far. So I'm with uh, so just after a game of uh, Legends of Five Rings. So how did it go for you? Uh, I think it went well. I enjoyed it. Great fun. Uh, really good players. I managed to finish it just before the end of the session, which is always good. Yeah, it was really good. It was really good how you saw the interplay between the different clans and the different characters, and the players really went for it as well, didn't they? Yeah, it was my attempt to um, do an introductory L5R game, so I kept it kind of a little bit setting light. So we had only two two clans, the Crab and the Clay, uh, the Crab and the Crane, 
and um, trying to emphasise the differences between the kind of etiquette and social niceties of the crane and the more brusqueness of, of the crowd yeah. and put a kind of marriage as the backdrop to kind of bring these two um, uh, uh, clans into conflict. So about all of your games, why did you pick this one to bring to the con? Um, I think because it's, I mean, partly for me, it's a, a new a new system for an old game. I've played like this five to lots of, you know, many years, but this is a, a relatively recent addition from um, FFG. So for me, it's to get practice running it. And also I've run L5R previous um, expos, and it's not often run, and I always people seem to want to play it. So I, I like offering it maybe every other year. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you provided some sake as well. Yeah. It went down really well. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, when I try and do it at home, I try and get a bit of, um, you know, some Japanese food or sushi or something, but um, I thought a, bit, a bottle of sake and some uh, amishi was safer for uh, Expo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you, Dirk. Cheers. <laughs>
this is a kind of improvised game. It's something I'm play testing. I don't really know if it's gonna how it's gonna go, so we're gonna very much depend on what you guys do at the table. On the sign up sheet, fine. Full disclosure, I can choose whether to sign up for that or not. But if I'm signing up for a con game, I expect it to be, you know, well prepared and the GM to know the system and know the scenario. That's my bottom line. Mm. Okay, guys. Uh, I think you need to prepare so that you're comfortable with what you're running. Uh, there's a lot of gems who think they're good at improvising who I would uh, have a discussion with about whether they think they are good <laughs> at improvising, <laughs> including myself sometimes. But yeah, um, when we talk preparation, a lot of people say, well, I don't like doing pitches and making pretty characters. Like, That's not necessarily what I mean. Mm. You can prep for a scenario by when you're in the shower, driving to work, whatever, and think about what might happen, what are the buddies going to be doing while the players are messing about, what, what could this scene look like? So your prep might actually just be a series of bullet points about things you think how it might go or what you could do to push things along a little bit. So prep doesn't mean getting your slide rule out and drawing things and cutting pictures out or anything like that necessarily. It's just preparing yourself so that when you sit down, you're reasonably comfortable with what's going to happen and you've got enough in the bank to kind of keep things going. And as we've said before, it doesn't have to be the full four hours. So if you can provide something good for about two, two and a half hours and then you're thinking, I'm flagging it, I don't know where this is going... Like, just take it to a conclusion, because people won't thank you for trying to push through when you're, if you're floundering yourself. Players will smell your fear. Like, don't... <laughs> yeah. Dirk, how much preparation do you do for your con slots? I do far more for uh, con slots than I do for anything else, uh, as anybody will tell you. Normally, I just uh, jot through things on a post-it note, but for a con slot, as Paul said, it's a performance, isn't it? You're playing with st strangers. Uh, they may not accommodate your shortcomings in the way that your friends do, so you have to uh, present yourself at the best you can be, mm. and, yeah. and that means doing preparation. And, there's a, and let's be honest, who doesn't like doing a bit of crafting exactly. and making a bit of gamer bling? And you may not use all that preparation. You may not. You may use about ten percent of it. That's fine, um, but it's there if you need it. Um, and if you've got a great group of players who run with stuff and improvise, we're not talking about. I don't think any of us are talking about like having something set in stone and your players are going to do what you want them to do. Um, but <laughs> This telegram know. took me four hours. You're going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the smell of a laminator in the morning. That means <laughs> no one's changing my plans now because they're set in plastic. <laughs> um, okay, uh, here's another one for you then. So how do we feel about running a published scenario at a convention? Because we all purchase published scenarios, probably quite a bit, or collections, or they'll write them in, in some of our cases. I don't see too many of them on offer at conventions. It seems to be, if there seems to be a feeling, and you guys can tell me whether I'm right or wrong on this, that if you've not written it yourself, you've not done it properly. So is it okay to show up and play Keep on the Borderlands, for example? What do you reckon, Mr. Fricker, writer of scenarios? <laughs> <laughs> they seem to have a bit of a shelf life. I mean, I think my concern is that people are perhaps going to forget what they've played. No offence if the person is in the audience. I've got a... Call of Cthulhu scenarios sat on board. It's basically Moby Dick. It's an adventure at sea. Are there many of those around? Because uh, one player signed up for it a second time, not realising that he'd played it before. And I'm like, well, wow. fair enough. But, you know, it's not like that's a common trope. Um, so my anxiety on that, it's not so much playing published adventures. It's just running adventures that I ran, say, four or five years ago. Because I'm concerned that people might have played those and forgotten and sign up for it again 
So I kind of feel, well, I can't run something I ran three or four years ago. I need to be running something fresh that I've written for this year. Hmm. That's kind of where I'm at. Give me another chance to get it right. Well, maybe. But we'll die There's no hope for that. No hope for that. Guys. Yeah, I don't think there's a problem with it. Uh, for me personally, when I've talked about prep and thinking about what you're doing, I think if you've written your own scenario uh, or guidelines, then you'll know that better than trying to remember what's in a book. And it'll save you reading the scenario at the table and trying to get it right or anything like that. So feel free to do that, but I think generally games run better when it's your own stuff because you know it better. That's the simple thing. Uh, Another thing for me personally, I like writing my own stuff because then if someone likes the game and wants to try a scenario, they can go and get the published one and they, they've not seen it before. And if they've got friends at the table, that gives them the opportunity to play the published stuff rather than the rubbish that I presented to them earlier. Mm, okay. Don't you uh, homebrew, Ben? Uh, I run a lot of uh, pre-done uh, stuff because I usually uh, use stuff that's been in White Dwarf or Imagine and uh, resurrect it. But when in that resurrection, I pick up some of the things that we've said previously about adapting it, making sure that there's bangs in there. It might bring it up to date um, so that you can run it mm. um, effectively. Because some of those old ones um, are poorly written. Um, <gasps> so they are, I'm sorry, but they are poorly written. So you have to kind of... Uh, inject in them uh, either through the pre-gens or uh, through putting some additional material in there to bring them to life. Mm. Okay. So if you're getting towards the end of your con slot for one reason or another, I mean, as you've said, if you can get to a nice, a nice end, it doesn't matter when it happens. How good should people be at spotting the conclusion of an adventure? How much writing should go into that in the first place? Is it acceptable to know how the scenario is going to end? Or do you want to leave yourself plenty of room for manoeuvre and, and put that to the table? Um, how much railroading is acceptable in a con game as opposed to perhaps at home? I don't think you necessarily have to have a conclusion in mind. Right. So you're not, there can't be a railroad because you don't know where you're going <laughs> to a degree. I mean, one of the ways I like to write scenarios at the minute is a bit more sandboxy. So there'll be villains and things happening and locations and a map. Maybe people can look at a point, I want to go there, I want to do this. And then things will happen in my head. What I'll have a timeline of what's going to occur, unless the players stop it. And ideally, the players get involved and speak to people, find clues, and fight people and whatever else, and stop it, and you get to a reasonable conclusion. But if you don't, you've kind of got that ticking clock of the villain's plans are going to come to fruition. It should become more and more obvious as the hours tick by that something bad's happening, and you're the people that's supposed to be stopping it, and you're not because you're busy shopping for maces or whatever it is that you're doing so I think have a conclusion in mind but don't tie yourself to it if something cooler seems to be coming along and then afterwards pretend that's what you planned all along anyway mm-hmm. that's, I think that's pr- precisely it you know going back to what I was saying earlier you need to have in, in mind that it's got to come it usually uh, ends with some kind of uh, conflict or some kind of uh, resolution you don't have to have it pre-ordained uh, but you need to make sure that it finds the players um, before you run out of time <clears throat> and in Call of Cthulhu, we all know how they end. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in a one-shot, there often is... I mean, I could compare the, the scenario to a dungeon. You know, you travel around the dungeon, but there's only, like, one door out. So at the end of the Call of Cthulhu scenario, you may end up in a similar place in that scenario each time, but by the time you come out of it, you know, you don't know if your internal organs are still your own, let's say, um, or they've been replaced by something else. So different things are going to happen along the path, but it may, in a you know, in a con game, it may sort of funnel towards us the same kind of destination, uh, and I think that's you know that's fine because a con game you have got to, you know, you've got to know that you can deliver an experience in in three or four hours, so it has different requirements to a you know an ongoing home game. Mm. 
And don't worry, I would say as well, if you're overrunning, I, I like, as I keep banging about pace, 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 make lots of stuff happen, quick, quick, quick. I know a lot of GMs end up struggling to get the scenario to last within that four hours. So if you get into like three, three and a half hours, and there's lots of scenes left and lots unresolved, like because you've had that human interaction, introduce yourself to the players and got them on board, you can say to them, like, let's have a quick break. I'm just conscious of time. We need to get the end. Are we all right if we just skip to this bit? So don't be frightened of just speaking to people and go like, look, we're not going to fit it all in otherwise, so can we just fast forward things and smash cut to the, the cool bit at the end? Mm. That's perfectly acceptable. I've certainly experienced in con games and, and sort of like looking at the GM's notes across the table, if the con game's running from, say, noon till four o'clock and you can see that they've got a schedule of events that are going to happen and the bad guy isn't going to do something until 2.15 and if it's quarter to two and your plan says it's not happening until 2.15, you're not being flexible enough. It's like you, you're not going to... It seemed like a good idea, I'm sure, at the time to like in your notes go, well, then in the final hour I'll do this reveal. You know, you, although preparation is key, you're not running a TV show and you're not reading your novel to people. It's an interactive experience and there has to be some give and take. Mm. And I'm sure people would rather reach a conclusion yes. than be left on a cliffhanger when they may not ever be coming back again. Yeah. Okay. And if it's a relatively open-ended conclusion, you can just kind of, you know, oh, we're about time up here. We kind of feel like we've reached a resolution here. Let's go around the table and see what a very short, you know, 30 seconds, what happens to your character, what happens to your character. Mm. Rather than you just sort of say, all right, that's it, let's go. Mm. Yeah, it's nice to just get closure for each character, and that could be like a unique thing for each player. Okay, okay so that's, that's our experiences and most of our top tips. We've got many more, and we've got some fairly appalling war stories, but you'll need to buy us pints to hear those ones because <laughs> if, if this is being recorded, I really want to be committing slander. No. <laughs> On a permanent record. Not after last time. <laughs> not after, no, no, not since the restriction order's been lifted. Three days to go. I'm not saying that panic is setting. But I have started buying stationery that I don't need, and that's my tell. If I don't think I've done enough preparation, I stop reading, writing, and doing the stuff I'm meant to do, and begin panic buying stationery in the hope that they'll paper up the cracks. I wanted five large paper clips so that the players could stick their initiative playing cards for Savage Worlds in their name cards in front of them. Instead of ordering five, I've got 500, and today, I need to sort out the Psy World for the Saturday afternoon slot. It's been my favourite slot as a games master and player in previous years. I think it's because I've relaxed into the convention and there's a general bonhomie because people are turning up for the Saturday and uh, just relaxing into it. If you've read the grognardfiles.com blog, you'll know that I came to own this Fantasy Games Unlimited Classic through accident. It's not a game I played back in the day and I'm not even convinced I'd ever heard of it until I saw it in the second hand bargain rack at Fanboy 3 in Manchester. Blythe and I had been on a jolly boys outing so I was half cut when I bought it. It was a drunken purchase but if you buy it you've got to play it. Them's the rules. I find something about it very appealing. It was written by teenagers and as Lauren Stick says in his Hero World's catalogue, if you feel persecuted just because you're better than everyone else, 
this is the game for you. I'll be doing a grog pod on the game uh, in the future, which will include some actual play that I recorded when I ran the game for virtual grog meet earlier in the year. So I won't go into too much into the detail here. But the world of Psyworld is coming to terms with the emergence of people with psionic powers and they're starting to breed true. It's based in a parallel version of America where the technology level is higher. But this is still a 1980s Age of Anxiety game. There are two factions. The psionics on one side or the psionic protection agency the ppa on the other the psionics are a resistance group using their powers to overcome oppression the ppa are the upholders of the law counter psionic terrorism agency keeping the peace now i made it harder for myself as the players can pick their side on the day I've got two sets of pregens. They can go hell for leather with psionic powers, or they can play the PPA agents with high-tech firepower. It makes it exciting for me, as the adventure will be turned on its head, depending on which faction they choose to play. So, the setup for the scenario is that there's been a spike of psionic activity in Hiddenwood, and the player characters are sent out to investigate. It's a race to discover the source of the psionic spike before the other rival party gets in touch with it. When I ran it online, the players pre-decided on playing the PPA agents, so the psionic team were configured as NPCs. On my backlog is a task to convert them. I've dropped it. Uh, convert it into a fully fledged uh, player characters. Creating the pregens are the most time consuming aspect of the prep for one shots. Arguably, the two elements of a convention play that you're always juggling as a games master is making sure that it doesn't overrun and also managing what people refer to as spotlight time. In other words, making sure that everyone has the opportunity to take part. With a turn-based structure, it's easier to stage manage as everyone has the chance to act when it's their go. With a narrative or more investigative scenario, it's less obvious, so it needs to be baked into the pregens. I used to use the standard character sheets for convention games, but I found that I've been laying them out specially for each game. When I create my own character sheet, I can include a bit of explaining of the rules, plus I can provide something that the player can latch onto at a glance. Also, giving a hint of the rivalry or some secret knowledge that's going on, and um, also tailoring the individual skills and powers so it's very clear to the player. So, let's have a look at this uh, psionic pregen. The Psy World character generation is very finickety and eccentric. For example, the hit points are calculated by adding the average of strength and willpower to endurance and dividing by two. 
which then gives a number of three-sided dice that you need to roll to calculate the hit points, which is then further adjusted by a couple of tables. Honestly. But I've cheated. The ten pregens are actually five pregens that are essentially mirror images of the attributes. I've given one set, the PPA, a load of cool weapons, and the opposing team will have psionic powers that are built on the chassis of their rivals. The hard bit of this is coming up with some individual motivations that will become relevant during the session, three each, in the hope that they'll pick up at least one. So this one is Blake Zen. He's recently joined the Bandersnatch cell of psionics who are hunting down teenagers who are going through transition so that they can convert them to their own cause. He wants to make a good impression on the Bandersnatches. He's also been in a relationship with Julie Wingrove, who's on the PPA team. He doesn't know that she joined the other side, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when she's revealed to him. And, as a telepath, he's encouraging a more subtle approach to the crew, who are notoriously quite ruthless. So there you go, three different things that hopefully the player can latch on to. Now there's no point putting things like introvert or likes to keep himself to himself. As a player, I'm always trying to find a way into the game, something that I can contribute so, when I'm designing these as a games master, I try and make it easy to find. The next way in for the player will be their special powers. Now I've laid out this character sheet so that it'll explain each of the psionic powers in as few words as possible. Some of them are wonderfully open to interpretation, such as mind probe, which can read subconscious thoughts. Where on earth does that start and end? Right, I've got a bit of work to do on these, so I'd better crack on. I'm, uh, I've just finished playing Cyworld, and I'm joined by Bud from Bud's RPG Reviews. Hey, Bud. Hello there. Alright, so how did you find that then? Anarchic, but fun. <laughs> we had a climatic plumbing roll, and I can honestly say it's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> so, uh, it's great to meet you, because I only know you through your hands. Yeah, I, I do actually have a body made up of hands, and I've got a hand for a head. <laughs> so if people don't know uh, Bud's RPG reviews, just give us a, your elevator pitch, what is it? Uh, I do deep dive reviews into into role playing products. Um, rather than just give a kind of overview, I go into the fine detail about what makes it good, including things like the, the build of the books and you know the art and even the quality of the paper, just to, to let you know properly what you're buying for your money. Yeah. And I don't think many people kind of go into that kind of depth that I go. Yeah. So you've done a, a quite a few now, haven't you? So how many, how many is it running that? Um, about 80 odd reviews and I think I've got the most RuneQuest and the most Delta Green reviews on YouTube right I'm yeah. pretty convinced I have I don't 
And so if people are looking for it for the first time, which uh, would, you, would, you, would you ask them to start with? Um, well, for RuneQuest, probably the RuneQuest second edition book. Um, when I did the review for that, um, I wondered who'd remember it. Because I, I grew up playing it with my friends and I managed to get hold of the box set and I, I did the review and I was like, oh, I hope people out there remember this, like I remember it. And I got so much feedback from people who was like, I bought that book and I loved it. And it was just so nostalgic to see you go through it and talk about it. Um, for, I suppose that's where I would start if you, if you want to get into RuneQuest, because I've had several people on YouTube say they got back into it through watching my reviews. Yeah, that's I, a good feeling that, isn't it? Yeah. I even had someone, I'm a messenger about it, someone said to me, um, I hold you and the Grognard files responsible for me getting back into it. Yeah. Do you remember that I was saying that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That, was, that, was, that was a nice feeling. Yeah. And so you were telling me that this is the first con you've been to um, yeah. for years and years. So how, how's that felt? Oh, God, it was overwhelming at first, to be honest. You go in that hall and the, the heat hits you and there's just, there's so much product. And it was just wall-to-wall -wall stacks of boxes of games, and it was a bit kind of overwhelming. But then when you go through a second time, you're a bit kind of better about it. And I'd never played a game at a convention before. PSI World was the first one I've ever played. Yeah, was it really? Yeah, it yeah, really was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can we look forward to a Psy World review? If you lend me the box set, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get one for a fiver on eBay, am I? <laughs> Cheers, bud. Thank you very much. No problem. See you later. Cheers, thanks. There's only one day left to go. Yesterday my family took me hostage in exchange for having fun over the weekend. We went to Blackpool to watch the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat. I closed my eyes and didn't open them again until it had finished. It means that I'm a bit behind with my preparation. But that's okay because I'm doing a pre-written adventure. And they're dead easy, right? Well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But the advantage of adventures that you've written yourself is that they exist in your head, so you've lived with them in a way you can't when someone else is trying to convey what's in their head. Those cool runnings through the anticipated twists and turns while having a shower or heading to work are easier when you've invented the bobsleigh. This adventure is something really special too, so I want to do it well. Back in the autumn of last year, the design mechanism announced that they were producing a game set in the world of Jack Vance's Elder Isles, as depicted in his Leoness trilogy of novels. I love those novels, the capricious characters, the casual cruelty and the inventive whimsy, the mischievous fairies combined together to create a vivid and unusual fantasy setting. I contacted Loz Whitaker and asked if it would be available for me to run a game at Expo. He did better than that. He wrote a scenario, especially for us. Amazing. Codifoot Stipule is set in a fishing village where the fishing boats are going missing. It seems that they are being dragged into the sea with no wreckage or corpses surviving. The characters all have a reason to hate their patron, Moribund, the burger, but are also compelled to do 
as he pleases. It's very fitting for a Sunday morning adventure, as it'll have a gentler, less aggressive pace than the other two that I'm running. The fun is going to come from the interplay between the characters as they interact with the strange situation that Loz has invented. I've read through the adventure carefully, and I always find it hard reading an adventure, as my mind starts racing, trying to work out how a situation described on the page is going to be framed around the table. This stops me from moving through to find out what's going on. But now I'm at the stage where I'm starting to underline bits that I want to make sure I hit during the adventure. It might be key events, but in this adventure there's also words and descriptions that I want to pick out and remember. They'll get a burlap sack, for example, at the start, and I like the sound of a burlap sack. So I want to make sure I say burlap. Normally, I take a pre-written adventure and extract all the essential elements and translate them into events and encounters and situations that I can put in front of the players when I want. But I want to play this one straight. After all, it's been specially written for the event. Take the opening scene. I would normally throw the players straight into a situation, put them into the action, in media res, hitting the ground running. In the Strontium Dog game, they'll find that the transporter that they're on is out of control and is about to crash land. In Psyworld, the young gang make themselves known to the players very soon and immediately begin to press them forwards. In Leoness, well, it's going to start with a breakfast. One of the features of the Leoness novels is the intricate details of the cuisine. To get the players rolling dice, the game provides a table to create the name of the village where the adventure begins, the name of the tavern where they meet, and to create the breakfast that they're eating. I was a little doubtful at first, but I think it'll work. It's an amusing way of engaging the players in a bit of world building and getting the dice rolling and interacting with the characters. Shall I give it a try? Okay, so first off, you have to roll a d12 to determine the preparation of the main dish. Okay, four. So it's steamed. And then a d4 for the ingredient. Meat. So, I need to do a d100 on the subtable. Gizzards. With an accompaniment of... Five mashed d4 and that's four fruit uh, back to the subtable 53 peach so it needs a sauce all vans dishes have a sauce so d20 two white wine flavored with d100 fennel so We've created a very fancy meal of steamed gizzards and mashed peach in a white wine sauce, flavoured with fennel. Mmm. Right, I'd better get on with underlining things at random in the hope that they'll stick in my head.
we're on our way, we're uh, packing up, and that's it, bloody three oh. days of gaming over. It's over with, I'm exhausted. I sit in at the table, somehow it's warm me out, because I'll go to the gym. <laughs> How did you uh, act on Cthulhu uh, game go? Have I covered that? I don't know if I have. I don't know. Uh, it went very well. Very well. I did learn something, though, I think, about Acton Cthulhu, which is sort of obvious. I think I learned that what people really want to do in a Second World War setting with the Cthulhu is get in a tank and blow up a Shoggoth. So yeah. the moment uh, the moment that uh, Tina got her hands on an anti-tank weapon to blow up a flying pollet, she was quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I've uh, I, I played uh, uh, Cy Wolves yesterday, that was it, Barney. And uh, this morning we did Lean S, that went really well. I was really pleased with that. Really enjoyed it, full of flavour and uh, yeah. nice, easy pace compared with the other two games I've played. Yeah, it had a very Vancean, Lean esque feel yeah. to it, didn't it? It did. Which was good. It's sometimes a hard thing to master in a game that's based on a particular setting. You know, you sometimes lose that, don't you? And it can descend into just being a, a fantasy game, any old fantasy. But it did does have a flair, very strong sort of sense of... And it brought the rules, didn't it? It brought the rules of in media res because it started with breakfast and making breakfast it with did, the mate. table. It, it did. You had to roll on the table for breakfast. Oh, not, not one table, about seven tables for breakfast <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious actually it's very very funny yeah boiled fish with uh... boiled fish with stewed prunes uh in a in a white wine sauce uh, with some celery i think and what was it? or sea urchin sea urchin yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't care you know <laughs> well that's it we're going to hit the road and i'm sure that we're going to uh, return to this um Later in the year, when we do our review of the year, yes. some of the games we've played. But right, let's uh, let's get going, okay. Ramblers. Let's get rambling. If you go to thegrognardfiles.com, you can read the full report of each of the games that I played and find out what actually happened. In Strontium Dog, Leonard Stump never did get to use his infinity gauntlets on his tiny, tiny hands, as the play characters cleverly used a wire launcher which wrapped around his ankle, and he was dragged over the top of a balcony to his death. Psy World was wonderfully action-packed and quite bonkers, and Leoness was a peach, a mashed peach. The design mechanism will be making the scenario Codifoot Stipule available as a preview to their Leoness game soon. Follow their Facebook page or sign up to their newsletter for details. Thanks to Loz Whitaker for his help in making it possible. If you want to hear more of the seminar, then head to What Would The Smart Party Do podcast feed where they've published the complete discussion including me mumbling on about middle management. As I said at the beginning, this extra episode will be appearing once a year and will cover some of the games that we're playing now. Nostalgia. And it was made possible by reaching a goal in our Patreon campaign. The podcast will always be free, but we appreciate the tips 
provided by the Grog Squad to help support and encourage other projects. The Grogzine 19 PDF is about to be made available to Patreons and tickets for Grogmeet 19 in Manchester are about to be released to Patreons first before going on general sale. In July, we'll be reviewing the Patreon campaign and setting out our plans for the next Grognard Files publication. Watch this space. It's been a few months now since I've had a chance to say thank you individually to new Patreons, so let me do that now. At the $1 level, hello and thank you to Steve Race, Neil Hopkins, Philippe Delmotte, Stephen Smith, Roberto, Tim Shannon, Matthias Fredrickson, and Chris Ritchie. At the $3.5 level, thank you to David Jackowardson, Pete Griffith, Ernest Ng, who's increased his pledge, Brinley David, and John Thorvaldson. At the $5 level, I like to give a virtual gift rolled from a table relevant to the episode. This time, I'm going to make you all a meal from the Leoness tables. Okay, here goes. Per Broden, who's still trying to convince me to do a Merp episode by tweeting me every Monday, he starts with the preparation. A pie. Neil Betterton chooses the main ingredient. Meat. Duck liver. Vaughan Allen chooses another filling. More meat. Game hen. Martin Pickett, the accompaniment. Pickled fruit. Cranberry. Joshua Reeves, the nature of the sauce. Robust. Chilli. Paul Owen selects a side dish of roasted artichoke. Jordan Linton, the next veg is roasted truffles. Mm. David Christopher Lee, effervescent pomegranate juice. Finally, David H. He adds a flavour of mint. So, thank you all. Five dollar backers, enjoy your Vansian feast of game hen and duck liver pie served with a robust pickled chilli infused with cranberry sauce and a side dish of roasted artichoke in truffles with a jug of minted effervescent pomegranate juice. A special thanks too to Albert Fitzwilliam Digby who's gone big at the $10 level. Thank you very much. I'll be sending you some Grognard Files dice. So that's it for this extra. Thank you for getting this far. Sorry if it's a bit indulgent. Normal service will be resumed next time with a grog pod about White Dwarf with Mike Brunton. Until then, adios amigos. <laughs>
Thank you.